Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Today, today we are going to be talking about mission now. Uh, we're going to be talking specifically about kind of personal mission. What is God calling me to go do? And we're going to be looking at the life of Esther uh, to kind of dive in on this question of what is God calling me to do today? What is God calling us to do (coughs) as an individual? And then how is God calling us as an individual to invite others into the purposes and plans that God wants to accomplish through us? And so I want to begin this morning kind of with a question. And that question is, is, have you ever been somewhere or seen something where you saw it happen and kind of in your gut there is this like voice that says, I should do something right now. And then you said, nah, not right now. And you walked away. And you walked away kind of feeling guilty or ashamed. And maybe it bothered you for like the rest of the day that you're like, man, I just, I just did not step in to that moment. And if that's you and if you've had that experience, I want you to know that you're not alone. Um, it's something that I think we've all experienced as a human. We felt like, oh, someone should do something and then we feel that voice saying, I should probably do that. And, uh, and then we just kind of go on our merry way, hoping and pretending that it, just, that it just really didn't happen. And I want us to know that we're not alone in that. It's not awesome that we do that, but we're not alone in that. There's this author called Erwin McManus, and he writes this book called Chasing Daylight. Um, I don't know if you have ever read this book or seen this book. It was also called at one point, seizing your divine moment. Um, if you want a book on personal mission and how to live out a life that is missional, I recommend you to also check out this book. And so we're starting a book club here at Damascus Road. It's called Chasing Daylight. Chasing Daylight by Erwin McManus. And in his book, he shares this personal story. He shares this personal story where he was at a conference and he had brought his family, and he's there with his son, and him and his son are walking along this Floridian beach, and uh, his father sees this uh, double amputee with special crutches, somehow had managed to make it out onto the beach, and he's struggling, and he's struggling, and he sees him, he goes, and he falls, and he falls right down on his face. This double amputee struggles his way back up onto his crutches, keeps going a couple more steps, and falls again. And Erwin says, in that moment, I had a choice. Do I go help this guy and turn left to help him? Or do I turn right and keep walking down this beach with my son, pretending that that problem doesn't happen? And he's like, and I turned right. I turned right, and I kept walking with my son. He's like, but you know, as soon as we turned right, guess what my son said to me? He said, Dad. He's like, yeah. He's like, do you see that man over there? He's like, yeah. He's like, someone needs to help him. He says, you're right, son. He said, you should go and help him. He's like, I had missed my divine moment, my moment that God had called me. I was able to identify this need, and I chose to ignore it. But in that moment, my son saw his. And so he chose, and he went to go help this man. And there was actually a crowd fairly near this man that was not paying any attention to his struggle. And so this 10-year-old boy goes up to help this man, and he's too weak. He can't do it. But in him trying to help this man, the crowd starts to pay attention. 
And the crowd comes near to this man and helps him <laughs> get off the beach and to, back into a safe place. And Erwin just kind of stands back and watches this happen. And his son comes back to him with a tear in his eye and he says, Dad, I was too weak to help him. I wasn't able to help the man. But Erwin said to his son, Oh, no, son. You are so strong that, in fact, you were able to encourage others who are stronger to be able to help this man that was in great need. And so my son did not miss his divine moment, even though I missed mine. I think this is a story that we can all relate to. We've all been in that situation maybe where we have gone and helped or maybe where we've stepped back and have taken that right-hand turn on the beach and walked away. And today we're going to look at the story of Esther. We're going to look at a woman of God who was positioned herself to be able to step into her divine moment at just the right time. And so if you guys want to, we're going to turn to Esther chapter 4. Turn there with you. And uh, just a little bit about the background of Esther. Um, Esther is the only book in the Bible that God nor prayer is ever mentioned. The name of God is never there. Uh, the word prayer is also never there. Um, but if you go and read Esther, uh, you will find that God and prayer and uh, the spiritual life is just oozing from the pages of this incredible short story. It's also been called the epitome of the short story for the Bible. Um, it has uh, some climax, suspense. It has uh, foils, character foils in it. It's an incredibly complex book. Um, it has a beginning, a conclusion, and an end. It's, it's a really incredible story. It's some, one that you can sit down and read in probably a half an hour. And so, you know, if you want to add that to your reading list again this week, here we've got, you know, two books, and now we're going to throw Esther on top of it. It's such an amazing read. It's an incredible story of how God is, <coughs> saves his people and how the people of God are encouraged to step into the moment um, of everyday life that has the potential of making an impact to change the lives of thousands around them. So a little bit of background here. The Jews are in exile. The Jews have been in exile, and the rulers have been kind of rotating. It was King Nebuchadnezzar, and now the kingdom of Persia has taken over, and so the king is King Xerxes, and King Xerxes is in power. He's in reign. Um, and he has a wife. He has a wife named Vashti. And the king decides to throw um, an incredible party for uh, his subjects, for the people of Persia, um, an incredible celebration for the people of his court. And in this party and in this celebration, he uh, kind of gets high on spirits. Um, and because he opened up wine, wine for all for a week, um, as much as they could have. And so it's at the end of the week, um, he's had quite a bit of wine, and uh, he wants his wife to come dance for him and for all of his friends. Um, and this is, uh, you know, probably kind of a dance with no clothing. Um, and so Vashti refuses this dance, and the king is frustrated. And the men of Persia come together. The leader in the men of Persia says, Word of what the queen has done to you cannot get out because then women all over the empire will rise up against their husbands, and we can't have that. As men, we can't have that. And so King Xerxes dismisses Vashti, 
quietly, and he becomes a bachelor. And in his time of bachelorhood, uh, he becomes lonely, and he desires a wife again. And so he decides the best way to pick a new wife is to round up all the women in the area and to kind of like try them on and experience them. And Esther is one of the women that gets round up, and they receive beauty treatments for like half a year in preparation for one night with the king. And so Esther, her night comes, she performs well, and King Xerxes falls in love with Esther. Falls in love with Esther. And so Esther uh, becomes queen. And so in this story, though, Esther has been adopted by her cousin, Mordecai, um, her older cousin, Mordecai. And Mordecai also works within the king's court. Um, and Mordecai is a Jew. The thing about Mordecai and Esther is that they are both Jews. So they're both kind of um, being occupied by this, this king of Persia. They are the minority. Um, they are seen as the lower class. But Mordecai has told Esther to hide her faith, to hide um, her cultural background as a Jew. And so King Xerxes, known in the royal court, knows that Esther is a Jew. She's kept it secret. And Mordecai works also in the court. And there's this man named Haman. And Haman is second in command to the king. And Haman expects everyone to bow down to him whenever he enters the room. And in this culture, being able to bow down to a person was on equal par as like worshiping or acknowledging them as a form of deity. And so whenever Haman enters in a room, Mordecai, being a devout Jew, would refuse to bow down. And this got under Haman's skin. To the point that Haman did not only want to destroy Mordecai, but he wanted to rid the entire country of the Jews. And so he, was, he went to the king and he offered this proposal of having a cultural cleanse in which every Jew in the nation of Persia would be executed on a certain day, and that anyone that executed a Jew on that day would be poor, paid um, an incredible sum of money. And the king said, all right, that sounds like a good deal. We don't, we don't need an uprising from these kind of these rebels living among us. And so they cast lots, and, it's, and in about six months is when this kind of mass execution of the Jews is going to happen. And it is right here where we pick up our story in Esther chapter 4. So you guys just kind of read along with me. It's also on the screen. You don't have to read out loud, but just read with me this chapter 4 and the story of Esther. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, and he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king, king gates clothed in sackcloth. And in every providence, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came to her, the queen was deeply distressed, and so she sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And then Esther called for Hathach, one of, king's, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her, 
and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went to Mordecai in the, queen, in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king and to beg favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathish went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther told, <laughs> spoke to Hathish and communicated to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's providence know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he might live. But for me, I have not been called to come to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather to the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days or nights, and, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Then Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther ordered him. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Esther. We thank you for the ways that you use uh, broken people, God, that are in broken places, um, that have been put in places of privilege, but also just been put in places in their life where you have them in that moment to be able to do your will, to be a part of your plan of saving your people. And God, we thank you that it does not depend upon us. And God, that deliverance will come somewhere else if we don't act. But God, we thank you that you've invited us to be a part of this. And God, may we be found faithful. In your name we pray. Amen. And so there's a lot going on here in Esther 4. And we could spend a long time kind of just going through the chapter of Esther and really the whole book of Esther. But today I want to focus on kind of one thing. And that one thing is that as Esther goes to walk out kind of her divine moment, as Mordecai suggests, she, he says, perhaps you've been chosen to be queen at such a time as this. And now I know this is like a really cliche line in Christendom, and we're like, ah, oh, such a time as this. And we can kind of like roll our eyes and be skeptical and be like, was she really like chosen for such a time as this? Was that what really was about, you know, because... Esther could also hear that, that question from Mordecai that says, you were created for such a time as this, and be like, really, really, queen, for such a time as this? Like, because really, Esther got to become queen because she was hot, and she was good in bed. Like, that's how she became queen. And it's been five years since she's become queen. And so it's really kind of a stretch of the imagination to say, really, like, I became queen not because of my beauty and because of, because of these things, but actually to save my people? I mean, you can be skeptical of that. 
And I raise that up because I think a lot of times in our own lives, God is trying to call us to go do something that is beyond kind of the imagination that we have in our current setting. So it could be your workplace. You could be like, well, I have my workplace at wherever you work because I got a degree in this field or I studied hard or I, you know, went and through the application interview process and this is just where God has me. And maybe you've been there a long time. You know, to go back to the story of the beach, Erwin McManus could say, I was on that beach because I was there for a conference and I wanted to spend time with my son. But maybe the reason he was at that beach and at that conference was for at such a time as this, his son would see the need and go help the man that was fallen. Now, would that man probably have received help somewhere else? Sure, that probably would have happened. That's not an excuse for us not to act. But if anything, it is freedom so that we can go and act and not be afraid of failing. Because I think a lot of times we see these needs and we think, oh, I could go act. And then we're like, well, I'm afraid. And fear grips us. And the fear wins out. And we don't go make the change that maybe God has called us to do. And so in this place where Esther has become queen because of kind of her physical attributes, Mordecai expands her imagination of why she is king. And he says, maybe you are queen because God has chosen you to be a part of saving his people. But also know that if you don't act, deliverance for God's people will come elsewhere because that's what God has always done. God will always save his people. And the beautiful thing is that he invites us into it. And like I said before, the beautiful thing is that there's freedom and that if we, we don't have to worry about messing it up for when we do go and act. And so as Esther lives out her mission and as she looks at the need that is before her. She kind of goes through these four steps. And these four steps are on your notes, and um, it's going to be on the PowerPoint slide here. We've kind of got this graphic here. And so she goes through kind of these four steps. She first identifies the need. She identifies the need of the people. The second thing she does is she assesses the cost. The third thing that she does is that she seeks out encouragement. And then the fourth thing that she does is that she takes action. She eventually goes to the king, and the king reaches out his scepter to her and allows her to have an audience with him. And so the first thing that Esther does is that the need has to be identified, and that's what happens in our lives all the time. We're going through our daily lives, and we see a need happen. And so in this place, the need is that the Jews have been sentenced to death because of this conflict that Mordecai and Haman have. And Esther seems to be kind of oblivious to this need until Mordecai comes to her. She just knows that Mordecai is upset. She's like, here, we'll send some clothes to Mordecai, and maybe he'll feel better. And then Mordecai says, no, Esther, that's not the problem at all. I'm not just having a bad day. Your entire people are about to be destroyed. And I think that God might have put you in a place to do something about it. And so Esther now sees the need. And she knows that to meet that need, it's going to require her 
to go to the king. And so we see her count the cost. She moves into the second place of counting the cost of saying, well, if I go to the king without an appointment, I could be put to death. I mean, it kind of tells you where her relationship is with her husband, right? Like, they're so close that, like, she's afraid that she could show up and he could kill her. That's, that's the type of, like, marital relationship that they have there. The king hasn't even requested her for 30 days. The flame has kind of died. Vashti was kind of sent away. We don't really know what Vashti's end was, you know, because she took some initiative. So Esther has to count the cost. And she kind of arrives at this place where you can almost feel her sigh. Say, if I perish, I perish. So she counts the cost. She reflects. She encounters this moment. She reflects. And then she does something that I think is incredibly significant and important. And is that she goes... And she seeks out encouragement from her people. She tells her people to go fast for her. And in this day, even though it doesn't say fast and pray, in this day, fasting was always paired with praying. And so she asks for encouragement that they would go and fast and pray for her. Even though she's in a place where her personal mission is in a place where only she can do what is required. Only she can go to the king and ask this to be done. Mordecai really is not in a place or position or privilege where he could go to the king. Only she's in this place. So even though she's in this place of personal mission where only she's the only person that can do this, she invites the entire Jewish community to go with her in it. So her mission does not happen in a vacuum. And I think that's something that we are kind of afraid of when we talk about personal mission is that, well, I'm going to be on mission over here doing my thing. And I can't be a part of this greater thing called the church. And actually the opposite is true. God has called you to go do the thing that only you can do. But he's also called you to bring that back to the entire community so that we can pray and fast and encourage you in it. The second idea around this place of encouragement is that it's to, the, the word encourage actually means to impart courage. I think a lot of times we confuse encouragement with this idea of uh, affirmation. Esther doesn't go to the people of the Jews and ask them to pray and fast for her so that she might know whether or not she should go and do this thing. She knows. She knows that she's the one that she's got to go do it. Instead, she's asking them to pray and fast on her behalf so that she might have courage to go do it. And there's a huge difference. I think a lot of times we're like, hey, can you encourage me? And we're looking for affirmation when really what we need is we need courage because we have a lot of fear. We have fear that is preventing us from going to do the thing that God is calling us to do. And so we need to be encouraged. We need courage imparted on to us. And that's what Esther does. She gets up enough courage, and she doesn't just muster it up in herself. There's this kind of allusion to God that God is the one empowering her and encouraging her to, to go and to appear before the king. And so then when she goes before the king, 
she goes with incredible, incredible humility. And the king raises his scepter of friendship to her. She has an audience with the king, and the king says, Esther, up to half the kingdom I'll give to you. What do you want? So she ends up hosting these couple meals, and it works out in such a way that the king creates a law. The king couldn't take away the law that the execution was going to happen on this day. But what he could do is he could write another law. And he writes this other law that says the Jews would not be punished for defending themselves. And so the book of Esther ends with this kind of celebration of the Jews where when, the people, when it's time for the people to go to execute the Jews, the Jews come together as a family and they defend themselves and no one is lost. And that God through Esther and through the working of the king has been able to have the people saved and delivered. And the end of the book ends with, and many people converted to Judaism. So many people came to know our God through the acts of Esther in her kind of divine moment. And so we come to this place where it just so happens that She's in the right place in the right time to save her people from annihilation. And the thing, and the thing is, is that Esther is not the only person who kind of teaches us the story of for such a time as this. Because we too worship a Savior who has come at the right time, at the right moment in history to save us, to save us from our sins. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he also kind of goes through these four steps. He begins with seeing the need. He sees the need that the world has for their sins to be forgiven and that we are constantly dying in our state of unrighteousness and that we need somebody to come and intercede for us and to give their life as a ransom for us. He sees that need and that is why he is sent because God loves his people so much. And so God sends his son to us because of the great need that we have in our lives. And Jesus comes counting the cost. He knows when he shows up that it, this thing is going to cost him his life. And he's really kind of candid and direct about it throughout his life. We see him talking a lot to both the disciples and to the crowds that, you know, in the coming days, the Son of Man is going to have to suffer. In the coming days, the Son of Man is going to be handed over, beaten, and killed. He gives this illusion that if you destroy this temple, in three days it's going to come back to life. It's going to be rebuilt. Jesus knows the cost. He's counted the cost that it's going to take for him to do this mission that God has called him to do for such a time as this. And only Jesus could do what Jesus does. And so we need to stop trying to be Jesus. We need to stop trying to save our own skin. We need to stop trying to offer ourselves as our own sacrifices to God and say, God, make me good enough that I could present myself righteous to you. And we need to start saying, God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who was the only one that could do this so that I might be saved, so that I might be able to participate in relationship with you. And so Jesus is the only one that can do this mission but through this mission, he seeks out encouragement along the way. 
He seeks out encouragement along the way. He seeks out encouragement from his father. He spends time with God in secret places. He prays to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's sweating blood, as he's feeling the reality of the cost as the cross is before him. And he surrenders his life over to the will of God in that moment. And we see him go with courage and with boldness to the cross. If you ever read the book of John and the story of the passion in John, you do not see a weak Jesus, but you see a Jesus who is on a mission, who has counted the cost, who's going boldly with courage to save his people. And finally, he acts. He acts. He allows himself to be arrested. He's spit on. He's beaten. He's silent before Pilate. He's nailed to a cross. And he surrenders his life and experiences the death that we should have experienced in order that we might live the life that we don't deserve. And we get to celebrate that as Christians, that at such a time as this, our God appeared before the king and was crushed so that we could go and have the scepter of friendship raised to us when we enter his throne room. And so that's Esther, and that's Jesus. And so the question kind of is like, well, what about us? What is God calling us to do? What is God calling you to do? Where has God positioned you for a time such as this? Where can you begin to look creatively at the place that God has you and begin to wonder, maybe he has me here for something else other than to write code or to build a building or to do whatever it is that you do. That maybe, just maybe, He has you here in this moment for something far greater than what you could ever dream of. And so we have kind of these. Can you throw the chart up one more time? And so we kind of have this chart here. This chart of see the need, count the cost, be encouraged, and take action. And so the question is, is where, where are you seeing needs? You can just leave it up, Rich. Where are you seeing the needs? What needs are around you? And I think that for us to see needs, we have to be present. We have to be present to one another. And I don't know about you, but in this kind of digital age, on my way to church, we were, I was listening to NPR, and they were uh, doing, talking about how difficult it is in this digital age for us to remain present. How difficult it is to you know, read a book because we've become so inundated with our phones and our laptops, and Facebook, and Google, and Wikipedia, and social media, that we're kind of just constantly wanting to like click here, click there, check an email there, write an email there, that we, our brains have kind of become scattered to the point to where focusing and being present on one thing is actually very, very difficult to do. And maybe you've experienced this too in your own life. You've got your own schedule, you've got kids, you've got work, you've got emails, you've got... You, you've got what you're doing tomorrow, you've got what you're doing next week, and it's all taking up brain space to where you're missing everything that's going on in front of you, and it's impossible to be present. And when you're not present, 
it's impossible to see the need. And so maybe the first steps for us to kind of step into this divine calling, this place where God is calling us for such a time as this, is that we need to take steps to become present to the relationships and to kind of the atmosphere around us that God has us in. The second thing is, what's the cost? Maybe you see the need. Maybe you've seen the need for a while, but you're like, man, the cost is super high. Maybe the cost, maybe you're stuck at this place of counting the cost. You're at this place of reflection. You're like, I don't know if I can actually do what God might be calling me to do. I don't know if I'm the person for that. I don't know if God would ask me to actually give up that much. And that's where we have to move into this third stage of encouragement. We have to be able to bring this need and where we feel like God is calling us to do, where maybe we're the only person that can actually do this thing. But maybe we need to come into community. And maybe even coming into community will encourage somebody else to take action in a way that they never thought. To go back to the story of the beach, that boy goes, he takes action to help this man, and he fails in it. But in his failure, he encourages and empowers other people who are stronger around him to meet that need. And so maybe we're in a place where we need to be encouraged, where we need to go and be in community and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. And we don't need affirmation, but what we need is true courage imparted. We need to pray for one another. David said in the Psalms that when he prayed to God, that God imparted courage to him. That where he was weak, God showed up and made him strong. These are things that we kind of hold as cornerstones to our faith. So we need to begin to live them out kind of in this third stage. So see the need, become present, reflect. What's the cost? Four, three, be encouraged. Take it into a place of community. And then finally, we need to act. Even if it's acting and failing, we need to act because that's what God has called us to do. That 10-year-old boy was so audacious that he acted, and he didn't wonder if he was going to fail or not. He just did it. And even in his failure, God still helped save that man. And so we need to act. And when it comes to acting, what I find, and this is kind of the motto that I've been trying to carry with me kind of the last six months, I feel like God has just kind of put it on my heart, it is this that we need to show up. And that 98% of the work in life is showing up. And I'll give you an example of this. So Jonathan and I like to get up early in the morning to go play racquetball. But do you know what's hard about going to play racquetball early in the morning? It's showing up. It is showing up. It's setting the alarm. It's getting up early. It's getting dressed. It's driving to the Princeton Club. That's the hardest part of playing racquetball early in the morning. It's showing up. But guess what happens when Jonathan and I both set the alarm and we're both faithful and we show up? Guess what happens? We play racquetball and we have a great time. And I know it might seem like, well, that's common sense, Justin. But, like, the hardest part is showing up. The hardest part is getting out of bed and putting clothes on because that whole time 
both Jonathan and I, when we get there, we're like, man, I was, I was moments away from texting you telling you that I couldn't make it. And as soon as one of us says, hey, we're not going to make it, guess what's not going to happen? We're not going to play racquetball. That's just not going to happen. And so when it comes to acting, 98% of the work is just showing up. It's just showing up. If you show up to something and you're present and you're prepared and you're ready to do whatever God has called you to do in that moment, you'll be amazed at what's going to happen. You'll be amazed at the friendships that will happen. You'll be amazed at the things that you accomplish. I mean, maybe it's like that with you at work. You know, it's really hard to get to work. But man, when you show up to work and your team shows up to work, I'm assuming you get stuff done because you all still have a job. (laughs) And those days are fun days to work when everyone shows up. They're like, we did something together. But man, it's hard. It is hard to show up. Because you can get there physically, but that doesn't mean that you're there. You can be somewhere else. And so when it comes to this acting, I think it's just as simple as showing up. When that boy on the beach saw the man fall, he had a choice. In that moment, that boy considered the cost. He said, maybe the reason I'm on this beach today is not to enjoy the waves, not to enjoy time with my father, but to help this man that's in need. So he saw the need, he counted the cost, and he felt the failure all while succeeding. And so we need to, one, stop excusing ourselves from acting. And we need to stop being afraid of failing when we do act. Because our God is good, and he is full of grace. And the reason why that boy acted was because he showed up. He showed up. And because he showed up and was present to that man, he was able to encourage the people around him to get him to a safe place. So when it comes to personal mission, this is as complicated as it gets. There, there's no programs. There's no magic words. It's just see the need, count the cost, be encouraged, and show up. It's as simple as that. If you want to be on mission, if we want to be a church that is on mission, that's present towards others, that's, that's, it's as simple as that. And just remember that showing up is 98% of the work. And if you can do that, that 2% is a breeze. That 2% is a breeze. And sometimes showing up is saying an email. Sometimes showing up is having a conversation. It's amazing. I've been meeting with more and more of you throughout the week, and it's amazing I will meet with you to talk about one thing. And because we both showed up and we did that 98% of the work, what's amazing is the conversation that we have and how the conversation grows and how it's broadened and how I think we both walk away feeling encouraged and enabled and equipped and blessed to be in relationship with one another. So I encourage you this week to show up and believe that God has put you exactly right where you are to do the one thing that only you can do at such a time as this. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, I just thank you for this day.
And I thank you for this time that we have together. I thank you for this time that we have to be encouraged by your word. And we thank you for Esther. We thank you for the ways that you used an incredibly broken situation, an incredibly broken human person that is Esther and that is Mordecai, and that you were able to work divinely through her, that you were able to empower her and to encourage her. And God, we thank you that at just the right time you came and counted the cost and saw us worthy of the cost to lay down your life that we might have forgiveness and freedom. And so, God, we praise you for that today. And, God, may we be encouraged and filled with your power to go and imitate your life with those that are around us right where you have us. God, may we show up and may we invite others to eat at our table, to come to our homes, to share in a game, to share in the things that bring us joy. God, I submit all these lives to you this morning, and God, we praise you for the goodness that you are. In your name we pray. Amen.